Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Coral Davenport, an energy and environment reporter for The New York Times. She recently wrote a long story for the paper about a new report from the United Nations that says we face even more dangers from climate change in a shorter span of time than even many pessimists had until recently assumed. To talk about this and uh, no doubt other terrible things, Coral Davenport joins me from Slate Studios in Washington, where she is based. Hi, Coral. Hi, Isaac. Great to be with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the program. So let's just start with some basic stuff here. What's your biggest takeaway? What was your biggest takeaway from this uh, UN report? The way the UN report works is um, under the um, under the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was the sort of UN Accord, um, which signed by nearly every country in the world, um, aimed at curbing global warming. That there was a, there was a target, there was a goal that was kind of understood by scientists and governments at the time in 2015 to be the tipping point past which um, the world is going to go into the most severe, irreversible, damaging impacts of climate change. It was understood that if the world warms up, the world's atmosphere warms up past 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, that's kind of that was sort of understood to be um, the tipping point that we want to avoid. So that's the Paris Agreement says the goal is to avoid that. 3.6 degrees. However, at the time of the signing of Paris, Paris Agreement, um, a bunch of um, heads of small island nations, countries that are already seeing the impacts of rising sea levels, um, water loss, severe coastal inundation, said, you know, we wonder if maybe maybe some stuff might be happening before that. And they essentially under the Paris Agreement, the world leaders commissioned scientists to look at what happens earlier than 3.6 degrees, what happens at 2.7 degrees, um, less than a degree uh, of warming earlier, um, which wasn't really known. Sort of a lot of most scientists, science has focused for the past several decades on that 3.6 degree mark. So what what happens in, in that sort of gray area before that? And that's the result of this report. It was an assignment to scientists that said, look at what happens, you know, less than a degree uh, of warming you know, sooner than, than what we thought. And so what it turns out, what they found out is um, a lot of the things that we thought were going to happen at 3.6 degrees several decades out are actually going to happen um, at 2.7 degrees and are going to hit pretty soon by 2040. So this is severe coastal inundation, uh, major droughts, crop and food losses, severe wildfires, food shortages, um, it will be a lot worse at 3.6 degrees, but but we th- th- this is stuff that we didn't realize how soon it's going to come. Um, so that's interesting. And another interesting thing about this report is this is this is the first report that looks at at that level of warming is able to place sort of pin 2040 at the year it's going to happen. It's and and it looks with more precision and granularity at. At, at what happens with less than half a degree of warming. That's something that's also really interesting. We haven't seen that precision. And and this tells us stuff that we didn't even know three years ago. It's very, very new. So, okay, so l- let, me, let me ask you this. The report sort of talks about the ways in which to keep this from happening, that there's a lack of political will, which we can talk about later, but I think we all agree is the case, that there is a lack of political will to, to seriously tackle this. If there was political will and we're facing this scenario, we're basically in 20 years where we're looking at some of the scenarios you described, 
what what would that political will, if it existed, look like that could really change the course we're on in such a short amount of time? So the report found that it is technically possible to avert this outcome, this 2.7 degrees of warming by 2040. Um, it said that Governments would need to take action within the next year or two. Like the action would need to start immediately. We would need to see um, a sharp drop off of emissions by 2030. So within the next 12 years, the number one thing that needs that would need to happen, the sort of central policy, is a price or tax on carbon dioxide emissions. Um, a lot of other things would need to happen as well, um, but that is uh, the report says um, a price on carbon carbon is central to prompt mitigation. That is sort of the, the number one thing that we would need to see. And we would need to see this um, implemented by all major economies. Does the report break down the degree to which the things that you talk about are going to hit sort of wealthy countries like the United States or countries in Northern Europe to the degree that it's going to hit other places? I mean, I, I know it's going to hit some poorer countries, places like Bangladesh, much harder than it than it would uh Norway, but but how bad will will this be in countries that uh, have more money and tend to be the ones making the decisions um, and uh, have the emissions as well? The report finds specifically, and I'm reading a, a direct quotation: the economic damages of climate change in the USA um, as a result of the 2.7 degrees of warming are expected to be large. It finds that the U.S. would lose about 1.2 percent of GDP for every 1.8 degree of warming, and and we've actually already experienced it. Found uh, 1.8 degrees of warming um, since about the 1850s, but those uh, those degrees are going to start going up a lot faster. So uh, gave a list of uh, nine countries um, that would be home to their home to about 50 million people who will be exposed to uh, very economically damaging and physically damaging harmful impacts of, of coastal flooding by 2040. Um, so it's those countries are the U.S., along with uh, China, Bangladesh, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Japan, the Philippines, and Vietnam. So the U.S. gets grouped with um, some other developing countries, uh, partly because it has a lot of coast, a lot of coastline where people live, um, where, where there's a lot of economic activity that will be that the report identifies um, will be harmed and 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 will be part of that group of 50 million people um, who will be harmed by coastal severe coastal inundation by this lower level of warming. Yeah, you say in your story at 3.6 degrees of warming, the report predicts a disproportionately rapid evacuation of people from the tropics. In some parts of the world, national borders will become irrelevant, said Aromar Ravi, director of the Indian Institute for Human Settlements and an author of the report. You can try to you can set up a wall to try to contain 10,000 and 20,000 and 1 million people, but not 10 million. I want to ask something that appears near the end of your article and also in the report because I was a little unclear about what the meaning of it was. So I'll just read from your article here. It says the report also finds that in the likelihood that governments fail to avert 2.7 degrees of warming, which I think you and I are sitting here saying is likely, another scenario is possible. I'm continuing with the article now. The world could overshoot that target, heat up by more than 3.6 degrees, and then through a combination of lowering emissions and deploying carbon capture technology, bring the temperature back down below the 2.7 degree threshold. In that scenario, some damage would be irreversible, the report found. All coral reefs would die. However, the sea ice that would disappear in the hotter scenario would return once temperatures had cooled off. 
And then you quote someone as saying, for governments, the idea of overshooting the target but then coming back to it is attractive because then they don't have to make such rapid changes. But it has a lot of disadvantages. So can you lay out exactly what you mean in this scenario here? Sure. So in order to avoid that 2.7 degrees of warming, um, the report finds that essentially um, the entire world economy would have to undergo a radical transition at a scale that has never been seen in human history. Um, it would We would have to see radical changes of um, our energy systems, how we get electricity, transportation systems, agriculture, um, basic urban systems, um, and that all of this would have to be implemented within a year or two. Um, again, technically possible, politically highly improbable. And so the report looked at the, the scientists, I should say. The scientists, I think, decided to look at this other possibility. They said, okay, well, given the political reality on the ground and the likelihood that we will not see the entire world economy turn around on a dime in the next two years. What are some other options here? And one is um, continue sort of business as usual. We we do shoot past that 2.7 degrees. We, we enter that post 2.7 degree world. Um, we start to see some of these severe impacts. But it, I think it's interesting that the scientists decided to study this. I think they, they sort of thought that is more likely to be the time when government's would feel compelled when when politicians might feel compelled to take action is after it's already hit, after we're already living um, in a world of extreme droughts and water shortages and stronger storms and more coastal inundations. Um, what if we start? What if that's the thing that 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 compels governments to take action? And so, if governments do take action, then in you know ten or twenty years, and move to aggressively start reducing carbon dioxide emissions and move to implement technology that actually removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, carbon capture um, technology, then it would be possible to to you know pull pull greenhouse gases out of the air and lower the amount that are that are going in so that in the following decades, the, the atmospheric temperature would actually go back down. Um, the idea of, you know, overshooting and then coming back down. And so the scientists looked at what that would look like and they said, in some cases, you go past a certain amount of temperature and some things on the planet just get so scorched they don't come back and one of them is coral reefs. Um, if you move past, if you go past that temperature, um, they found that coral reefs, we would see um, – Mass mortality, um, probably all coral reefs dying. And once that happens, you lose them. They don't come back. But one thing that would come back is is sea ice. So in the in the 2.7 degree scenario, um, in, in, in the scenario in which we move past uh, 2.7 degrees towards 3.6 degrees, we would start seeing um, – such such a mass melting of sea ice. We would probably have um, one summer every ten years with no sea ice at all. Um, we would have you know major melting of polar ice sheets. But what what the report found, what the scientists found, is that as the atmosphere starts to cool off again, that ice would return. It would it would build back up. That is something that you can you can heat up and then go back down, and you can actually bring back. The sea ice. So it was interesting. They put a lot of detail into into that outcome because I think that the scientists saw that as something that may, may be the most possible of of, of the different outcomes. Um, right. Right. So so, but it was interesting to see that 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 it is it's possible to do that, but 
some, you know, some things you lose and you don't get back. Well, I mean, this is kind of a this seems like one of the things about political will that something bad is going to have to happen. I, I don't say this as a as a defensive inaction, but something bad is going some worse things are going to have to happen for anyone to take action. And I, I suppose it's good that the scientists are thinking about this stuff since it is the most likely scenario. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to fall into fatalism, but uh, it is where we are. It is. It is. And and again, I think that's um, I, I don't think that that piece of the assignment was explicit. I think, you know, the world leader said, just look at look at what, what it takes to do 2.7 degrees. And I think that that was one that the scientists were like, let's look at this way of getting there. Um, because scientists also do live in, you know, they don't, they don't live just in the world of the technically possible. They also live in, 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 a, in a world of politics and, and they understand that what they're saying has to happen in the real world. I read your story and I read a bunch of stories about this report and and sprinkled throughout them are comments from places like the World Coal Association, um, some of the Koch brothers networks, um, places that are opposed to um, taking large action of the type that these scientists are recommending. It also felt like some of their statements were a little bit more muted than they were maybe five or 10 years ago, as if... They know they've won the battle in some way, and so perhaps they don't need to sort of go after the science in the same way just because the politics are so impossible. Is that – am I reading too much into these statements? Do you think that the way that these groups have dealt with the report is is it all different? What do you make of it? I do see less attacks on the science. Um, I don't know if that's sort of a – I don't know if that comes from these organizations feeling like they've won so much as it is – this this report comes from a group of scientists that have have won a Nobel Prize specifically for the rigor and clarity of of their work. Um, the scientific consensus um, on the on, on on sort of the basic the the basic established way that global warming works um, is actually there. There's greater scientific consensus on that than there is on whether or not uh, smoking is linked to lung cancer. Uh, the president of the former president of the National Academies of Science. Uh, Told, told me that. Um, I, I think it's it becomes harder and harder um, to attack the basic science. Um, the more that we see, um, you know, th- this re- this report reviewed six thousand published peer reviewed reports. Um, the the authors of it took into consideration forty two thousand comments, which every single one of which is addressed in the report. Um, the body of evidence is just is at this point so strong that I think it's very hard. You know, an organization like the World Coal Organization, uh, World Coal Association, you know, they, they represent companies that have to operate in the real world. Um, you know, they're not a political organization. They, they can't really say um, that's not true. So I, I think that's part of the reason we don't see th- this, this questioning of the science anymore. Um, on the other hand, it's absolutely true, and these these groups have are correct, and and in making the point that um, the policies called for by this group, you know, very high carbon taxes implemented almost immediately would be very economically disruptive. They would raise the price of gasoline. They would put coal miners out of work. There's no question that the kind of policies called for and the speed at which they would need to be implemented would be would be disruptive and would have economic losers. And I think that the critics of, of these policies um, are right in pointing that out. They're, that it's, it's accurate. Um, they can make a, a strong case by just saying, you know, pointing to the impact of the policies without attacking the science. To what degree is the lack of political will 
in various countries about this. And I mean, America may, you know, America's obviously not done a great job of this, but so so have some other countries. Um, to what degree is the lack of political will about in each of these individual countries, there are specific political issues going on and that nothing would change, n- nothing about the worldwide pressure uh, or situation would change that. And to what degree is that is it that countries just want to see other countries making firmer commitments and following through on them before they are willing to follow through on them themselves? Well, a lot of countries, a lot of the world's major economies are um, applying these policies. China is moving forward with a national price on carbon. Um, The entire EU has a carbon price. Um, Canada is moving forward with a carbon carbon price. I mean, a lot of the, you know, not, not all of the carbon prices are the carbon price, you know, there, there's questions about how well they work. Um, they're not certainly not at the level um, that the economists who contributed this report called for. But you know, the, the, the sort of biggest policy that this report calls for is a price on carbon, and we are seeing many major economies moving forward with, you know, sort of the first policy steps in implementing that. Um, I think in the U.S. The world's largest economy and and the place where the carbon the idea of a, a price on carbon was invented, um, it's just abs- it's considered to be politically toxic, uh, even even for Democrats to to embrace um, a, a price on carbon or a tax on carbon. I think it's considered to be um, a one way ticket to losing your job if if, if you're a lawmaker. Um, whereas I think in a lot of other countries. There's debate. The debate in other countries is, you know, how high should the price on carbon be? Should it be implemented more slowly? Um, you know, what are ways that we can offset the impacts? Um, as opposed to, you know, in the U.S., the idea that that this is just something that that is not even on the table to begin with. Right. No, we're we're severely lagging. Um, I mean, are there are there countries that you think, or that the scientists point out, have set a price on carbon that? if kind of adopted as a universal standard, would uh, prevent the things they're talking about? I mean, are there a couple countries that are really at that level? Well, so the EU has had a price on carbon um, for more than 10 years. It hasn't worked very well, partly because um, the price, the prices that they've set have been extremely low. Um, so it hasn't been particularly effective um, at lowering emissions. So I would, I mean, right now, this, you know, China is, is, it's just in the very early stages of their carbon pricing program. I think the question for China is how good is their carbon accounting? Um, how good is their, you know, in order for, for a carbon pricing program to work, you have to be sure that all the tons of carbon that are being taxed are accounted for. Um, and I think that there are a lot of questions about how well China uh, counts and reports. You know, it's sort of it's sort of emissions bookkeeping. So, you know, if, if it's not doing a good job with that, then its, it's carbon price might not be as effective. Um, in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has called for a national carbon price um, to to take effect by the end of this year, I think that we are seeing uh, you're seeing pushbacks from some of the Canadian provinces. The province of Ontario um, looks unlikely to 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 implement its own carbon price. I think there's going to be kind of a national fight there. So again, the the difference is that um, in these other major economies, you're seeing debate over how do we make this work? How does it work? How can we make it work well? Again, as opposed to in the U.S. where, you know, there's just kind of nothing to work with. Tell me how uh, how long you've been reporting about uh, energy and environmental policy. Uh, Twelve years. 
How did you get into doing it? I have to sort of rewind for a little bit. It was 2005, summer of 2005. I was I was doing a, a fellowship program at American University. I, I had already been in journalism for a number of years, um, and it was sort of a – I had been abroad. I had been in Europe, and I was uh, I, I was kind of doing this fellowship in Washington um, to kind of dive into the world of covering Washington reporting um, and, and covering policy and covering Congress. And two things happened the year that I was in the fellowship. Um, one, right when I started, the the sort of first big thing that was um, coming out of Congress was the Energy Policy Act of 2005, um, which was, I think, the last time, 13 years ago, that Congress passed sort of a big, sweeping, major, comprehensive energy law. Um, so that was just sort of what was coming out of Congress. And so that's what I was paying attention to. And, and there was debate about that. And then something else happened, and that was Hurricane Katrina. Um, and Katrina was uh, a moment that really re-energized the conversation about the impact of climate change in the United States. Um, I think, you know, back then, it, it, what, there was still a sense of, well, what, you know, there's two sides of the science and there's this debate and this is all very theoretical and far in the future. And that was sort of a moment, you know, Katrina was so powerful and scientists were able to step in and say, well, this is the kind of thing you see when you have, um, you know, warmer warmer water temperatures, higher sea levels, warmer atmosphere, you know, that that is – those things which are caused by climate change do contribute to stronger storms. And 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 there this was kind of taken seriously. And something else happened with Katrina too, which is that it wiped out a lot of um of the Gulf of Mexico um uh, oil oil rigs and oil refineries. And we saw giant spikes in gasoline prices and and energy shortages for a little while. And we sort of saw all of this kind of ripple through the economy. So I was I was working, I was doing this fellowship and I just thought this is so fascinating. You know, all of this is sort of all tied in together, sort of the the fate of the world and and the economy and you know, the energy that drives our economy is is the same thing that's that's kind of, you know, leading to these 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 powerful destructive things that are going to happen in the future. So I so I just got very very interested in it. Well, so you you mentioned Katrina and kind of the consciousness that changed after that. Do you feel that the way that global warming, though, since you've been covering it in sort of the post Katrina era and climate change, that the the way the media has covered it has changed, and if so, how? Certainly, the way I cover it has changed, and um, the reason for that. There's many reasons for that, but one thing that we really saw happen about four years ago, 2014, is um, that was about the time that we started to see the first major scientific reports coming out that started having strong um, attribution to weather events. Um, About four years ago, the science started to be able to say this weather event or this, you know, this drought that we lived through, or this particular, um, you know, heavy rainfall was made worse by climate change, and this, the, the you know, and the science can attribute that. Um, that really, that really changed the way um, you could write and talk about climate change because. It changed it from this abstract threat in the future to something that was happening here and now that had price tags on it. Um, 
by price tags, I mean, you know, there there was a specific drought in Texas. I remember that there that there was attribution on, you know, that a report came out saying this drought was worsened by climate change. And there was a lot of economic loss associated with that drought. Um, there was a lot of livestock loss. There was a lot of crop loss. There were very specific pocketbook impact as a result of a drought that was worsened by climate change. And when you can, you can start to draw that connection, people care about it a lot more with good reason. I mean, you, you would care a lot about, about more about something that affects your livelihood right now than you would about an abstract future threat. And that that the story started becoming a lot more compelling, um, a lot more compelling for readers around that time. And, and that and that's only increased. I mean, that was the beginning of attribution science. It's, it's much stronger now. Reporters are not activists and uh, we're not supposed to be activists and um, most most of us are not. But it, when you're covering a subject, it's um, it's exciting and interesting to see movement around it, not not even necessarily movement in one direction or another, but that people are if you're covering a scientific issue, that people are taking it seriously. And we saw the way this report landed this week where it made a bit of a splash and then it kind of fizzled the way all this stuff does compared to the insanity of the news every day. And I'm wondering just whether that's hard or depressing to focus on how awful and scary this stuff is and see that see that people are paying attention but nowhere near as much attention as um, certainly the scientists you're writing about uh, believe we need to be paying. Um, no, because I mean, this report is there's, you know, this report is one of a zillion stories, you know, compelling, new, interesting. There are so many new, interesting stories about the impacts of climate change being felt every day. Um, and again, I think people pay more attention to those stories than they do even to sort of these big doomsday scary reports. So the the story of climate change is, is evolving at you know what we can say what we know um how it is hitting people um in their backyards in their pocketbooks um there's no shortage of those stories you know because we can do stories on exactly the way climate change is having an impact on you know sunny day flooding in Miami um or you know you know, river flooding in Iowa or or crop losses in the Midwest. Um, you know, when we're able to draw those connections and do those stories, um, you know, this the steady march of stories and the increasing strength of attribution science, um, and the fact that that those stories are gaining more attention, they're they're getting more, you know, front page coverage. Um, this report is is one in so many stories. And I think that's different too too. I think several years ago it would have been like, okay, well, we had our big scare report, you know, it was, you know, it ran on page one and that's our climate coverage for, for the next six months. That's our big climate story. Um, now, you know, we have climate stories all, all the time, every day. You know, we have a whole team of reporters at the New York Times that just cover all the different impacts of climate change or, or, or all, all, you know, the, the policy, the politics, the impacts, the international debate, um, the economic debate, um, there are so many facets to this story, and and we also find that they get they get they tend to get good numbers. Readers like them. Readers are interested. Um, so we've had you know at least half a dozen climate stories in the paper just this week um, that aren't even you know, and we have stories that aren't even about reports. So um, in terms of in terms of coverage and our readers going to pay attention to it, that I'm not discouraged by that. 
Coral Davenport covers energy and the environment for The New York Times. You can read all of her work at New York Times, nytimes.com, or even better, subscribe to the print edition. How, uh, how much do you have to deal with people uh, commenting on the fact that your first name is Coral and you write about global warming? Everyone has something to say about that. But there's no conspiracy, just a coincidence. Just a coincidence, yes. Yeah, someone asked okay. me if it was like my nom de guerre. I was like, no, it's the nom my parents gave me. Uh, no, it's a good name. I just, uh, you know, it's hard not to comment on, especially if you have a bad sense of humor like I do. Coral Davenport, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Sure, it was great to be with you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley and Danielle Hewitt at Slate in D.C., if you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. <laughs>